Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, this is Jason Grigla, and welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. Today, I'd like to be a little theoretical. Maybe I'm always a little theoretical, but I'm thinking about how to best understand and best describe what it's like to help somebody with autism to develop. And something that I'm constantly trying to explain or describe to others has kind of taken the form of an experience I used to have when I was a scoutmaster long ago. And we once went on a camp out at spring break down in Arizona, and we drove up into the mountains. And spring break in Arizona is hot and sunny for the most part down in Phoenix. But we went up and drove up in elevation, ended up hiking down about two and a half, three hours into a canyon. And it dumped snow on us so hard out of the blue. None of us were prepared for it. We got to the bottom just as it was getting dark and planning on spending the night there and building a fire to cook stuff on for dinner. And we could not find any dry wood whatsoever. It had rained and then snowed and then melted somewhat and then snowed again. The wood that we did find was wet and we had some matches and some lighters. And so we stacked the wood and put the smaller stuff on the bottom, tried to find some dry leaves and twigs, but everything was wet. And no matter what we did, we would add our flame to the bottom of the fire stack and the wood and the twigs and it would start to smoke. It would start to sputter and spark. And it would start to burn until we pulled our lighter away. And as soon as we pulled our lighter away, the flames that had started would slowly flicker out and puff into smoke and then stop stop burning. And the the chemical reaction would end and the wood was so wet that it would not take its own flame. And how many times have I, as a parent or a therapist or a mentor, tried to add my flame to someone I'm trying to mentor, and they're like wet wood, not quite knowing how to burn, how to self-spark, how to stay lit. And trying to get them to burn is kind of the equivalent of adulting or being independent. Um, and so what we do as mentors is we add our flame to their wood pile until they start to flicker and flame and burn. And we know we've kind of done our job when we can take away our lighter and their, their wood stays lit and actually starts to burn on their own. And that's what independence and 
autonomy and self-reliance looks like for our young adults. What I learned from that scout camp out is to always take a propane torch with me from then on on my campouts because we froze that night and we were so worried that we were going to freeze to death because it got so cold out of the blue, a cold snap hit that we actually hiked back out in the dark to our trucks at the top of the canyon and got back to the trucks at about midnight. And it was horrible. Anyway, we, from then on, I just started taking this propane torch that you push the button and the flame just burns. And that flame is so strong that it can start almost any wood on fire. And if you add matches or lighters to wood, any wood, eventually it's going to dry out enough to burn. But sometimes it takes minutes and hours. And I wonder if sometimes we're trying to use a lighter to light a wet log on fire when they're really just never, never going to burn from the amount of flame being added to a big wet log. The problem is we just don't know. We don't know what they're going to be capable of. We don't know what they're going to be able to stick with. We don't know what they're going to learn. I am so often surprised by some of the some of the students we have and the and the people I've worked with when all, all of a sudden it's like all of our work shows no evidence of success. And out of the blue, one day or one week, there'll be this huge developmental leap forward where they just get it or it clicks. And those are far and few in between, but they do happen. And it was almost like water was building up, building up, building up behind a dam. And then finally the dam broke. So you just never know what the experiences they're having now or had a year ago or six years ago are going to make a difference in the next week or the next day or in the next year. And so helping our students self-spark and be self-reliant and independent is kind of the definition difference for me for being neurodivergent and disabled. If someone is incapable of self-sparking and staying lit or burning on their own, then really they are incapable of doing that thing. When we look at the definition of autism specifically, there's three things that they talk about. So listen to these, and they're typically called um, the autistic triad or autism triad, but this is them. One is impaired social interactions, two, impaired verbal and nonverbal communication, and three, rigid thoughts and repetitive behaviors. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that describes every 12 to 15 or 16-year-old boy I've ever met because their brains are not developed and they are developing and becoming. And the reason we don't say that teenage boys are disabled is because we assume and they are likely to develop out of those issues and the, as their brain becomes more complete and more developed. But the reality is teenagers go through some brain growth that goes from pretty stable to what on earth happened to my teenage child and then eventually they get their sanity back if they make it through their teenage years without the parents doing something drastic but the difference would be the timeline and 
milestones are just comparisons between what we think is typical for meeting a milestone and what isn't. And yet a lot of a lot of neurodivergent personalities, they meet milestones earlier in some ways and then later in others. So it's the differences that set them apart. And that doesn't necessarily make those a disability. And I don't know where necessarily to draw the line between disabled or not. I think I think you can actually be autistic and not disabled, but have it rougher than some. Or maybe by law, we say yes, all autists or autistics are disabled because they're applying for government support and social security income. I wonder if we would even have diagnoses if it weren't for the need to say who in our communities and societies need extra help and support. I wonder if 200 years ago, the kid or the nephew or the, the uncle who was just quirky and today we realize, wow, those guys would have been diagnosed with autism. You know, they were just a part of the family and joined in and did what they could. And they weren't the same as everyone else, but nobody really cared because they did what they could. And people lived on farms for the most part. And that was what it was. So I think I wanted you to understand that if someone who's a young adult specifically or a teenager is trying to become self-sparking, independent, and self-reliant to live their best life. We want to keep adding our flame as long as we can until it does more damage than it does the possibility of good. And one of the downsides to that is we just don't know if we're trying to light a fire that will actually burn at some point or if we're holding a lighter or, or a match underneath a big, thick, wet, sodden log that will never burn. I think we kind of get a feeling um, what, what they'll be able to do or what they're capable of. And as long as you remember kind of this basic rule that most neurodiverse young adults don't hit their stride until their mid to late 20s, that time is on their side. And that makes it harder for those who are supporting them. But I don't really know. I don't really know where we would say someone's disabled because they took until they were 25 or 27 to be ready for college versus someone that was ready at age 16. And I think some kids are ready for college at 16 or 17. And, and yet others aren't ready until their mid to late 20s. Do we call them disabled? what do we call the students that are ready early? You know, we don't label them. I think, I think it's really important to not judge the situation as much as just assess what's needed and do what you can. It reminds me a little bit of an ambulance driver or a medic or a firefighter giving CPR to someone who has been electrocuted or drowned. And you just got to wonder at what point do you stop doing CPR? At some point, a professional has to call it. But those of us who aren't professionals, we are recommended and trained to just keep doing CPR until someone tells us to stop. And the most extreme cases of people coming back from death 
um, are way further than most people would assume that they could live. And so if you always go by just what's expected or the standard, you would stop trying CPR long before maybe they could actually come back. So I, I like the idea of I know that I did what I could without it destroying myself, my marriage, my other children in the home. I like to know that I did what I could without being resentful, bitter, or hateful, broken. And it's okay to sacrifice and stretch and push. That's different than destroyed. So I think anyone who struggles with a difficult child or client or mentor, mentee, excuse me, that is neurodivergent knows that there's going to be some sacrifices. They might fail out of their first semester at college before they figure it out. They might have to retake a few classes or their driver's test. They might not be ready to drive and drive themselves for a while. Um, vacations are ruined because of temper tantrums or flat out refusal to go anywhere. And they, they just will sit there and there's not much you can do about it. So I think those things are normal and they're sacrifices and they're hard. And I think we can roll with those for the most part. But overall, I love the idea that eventually, with enough fire, every stack of wood can start to burn on its own in some ways. And I think that's true. In some ways, everyone can be self-sparking and continue to support their own flames. But it may not be in every area. But it will be in some areas. So that was my message today is don't get frustrated because the wood is wetter with that specific child or or teen or young adult than the typical pile of wood it's it's just a matter of well are they are they ever going to burn and we just don't know until we try and i don't think that's a problem it's time to let go of the judgment of timelines and they should have or could have by now if they had wanted to and just accept what is. So thanks for listening. Keep up the good work. I think those who have been mentors and added their flames to others to get them burning, they know the joy and the satisfaction of benefiting others' lives, and it is well worth it. And so I, my hats go off to all of you who are carrying around lighters and even pulling out propane torches when necessary to really get that wood going. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com. dot